0: Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to our evening broadcast. Evening Dhamma Talk. And I thought I'd talk about karma. Use karma as a sort of a jumping-off point. Karma is, I think, one of the one of the more interesting aspects of the Dharma, the Buddha's Dhamma. I've talked about this, of course. I've given many talks about karma. I'll we'll go over some of the the ideas, where it comes from, of course. Karma is not a Buddhist word It's a Sanskrit word I mean it's a simple word Having to do with action Karma means action And so when someone had work to do And they said Oh I gotta go now Because I have Karmankaroti I don't know It's probably different Karmankaroti I have work to do So it's all meant I have some some things to do, actions that I have to perform, and so in a spiritual sense it came to mean uh, ritual action, performing sacrifices, they had very elaborate uh, complicate, complicated esoteric rituals that they had to perform and those rituals were considered to be a uh, spiritual karma or, or, or high, a high sort of karma. They were uh, actions that had some magical results. You perform them and as there's a sense that you go to heaven and that kind of thing. Maybe you just get cows or sons or wealth. Those are the big things, maybe not in that order, but victory in battle, etc., etc. So when the Buddha came along, the idea of karma was well established. And he he actually, um, you know, really if you look at it, he taught against the concept of karma. He taught against it in a couple of ways. First of all, he said that ritual action is useless, meaningless. You don't really have seven years of bad luck if you break a mirror, or bad luck if you walk under a ladder. You don't get good luck from rubbing a horse or um, a rabbit's foot. You don't go to heaven because you pour butter on the fire. Sorry, it's a little harder than that. And so he pointed out what he had seen, and that is that you know, true kamma is in our, our intentions or our state of mind. Manopubangama dhamma. Manasate padutena basatiwa va If you act or speak with a defiled mind, then suffering follows you. You act or speak with a pure mind, then happiness follows you. I thought that karma had everything to do with your state of mind when you do something. So if you step on an ant and you didn't know it was there, your state of mind is not culpable. It's not. You don't have the mens rea, the guilty mind. Of course, if you go and if you see ants on the ground and you go out of your way to stomp them all to death, then that certainly is a guilty mind. So quite simple really. I mean it was really just denying this special sense of karma and reminding people that what's really important is your your awareness, you know your in, your intention, your inclination. And so there is a lot of teaching about karma in Buddhism In the the sense of intention Talking about cause and effect And so we hear about how Hurting someone in this life Makes you sick in the next life Killing someone in this life Makes you uh, short-lived in the next life Uh, Being generous in this life Makes you rich in the next life Being humble in this life Makes you famous in the next life the Buddha taught these sorts of things. I mean, it's a very coarse and, and general sense. It's not one-to-one. It's not absolute. There's so many more factors, right? There's dita, dhamma, vedaniya, kamma, kamma that uh, ripens in this life. There's kamma that ripens in the next life. There's kamma that ripens in some other life. And there's kamma that has already been extinguished. It won't give a result. Then there's all the many different kammas that have to compete. Some kamma creates results. Some kamma supports existing or potential results. Some kamma weakens uh, the power of other kamma. Some kamma destroys the power of other kamma. It nullifies it. In many ways of looking at kamma. I saw. Why made me really think of this is I saw just earlier in my room today a cat in the backyard and caught a squirrel, then killed the squirrel dead. So besides thinking about how cruel and evil cats are, it made me wonder about uh, about the, the the idea actually of survival of the fittest. You know, the idea that this squirrel was unfit and therefore it fell fell prey and that over time only the... uh, I mean it makes simplistic logical sense that this idea of survival of the fittest and and it looks very much like what happens in life but it's kind of silly because what if that squirrel was at the top of its game um, but circumstances um, conspired, you know Sometimes the lazy cat, lazy squirrel gets lucky So it's not, So what they would say is that well over time it's going to eventually be survival of the fittest, but if you look at it closer from a Buddhist point of view, I mean it's kind of interesting to think of which species flourish what, what members of a species flourish from a Buddhist point of view, first of all, it's those who have good karma, right? and if someone has good karma They're much likely to be healthier and stronger and faster than the rest, right? Because they've just, they have a mind that is, I mean, it's really, they have a mind that is so powerful and so focused, so confident, so energized by their goodness. And so, survival of the fittest, in that sense, from a Buddhist point of view, turns out to be very much associated with karma. Of course, then there are other aspects, like those that are. I mean, what, what then is interesting about those who have bad karma, must say like the squirrels that keep getting eaten they would be much more likely to be disenchanted with being a squirrel and so much less likely to then be born as a squirrel whereas those who really liked being a squirrel and were really good at being a squirrel would probably be born again and again as a squirrel So you you'd think that you'd get over time and what you see it also fits the Buddhist these Buddhist ideas of karma, that you see a, a, a streamlining and a refining, and so you get this efficient group of people, right? The squirrels who weren't very good squirrels wouldn't stay as squirrels very long. They wouldn't want to be born as squirrels again. But those who do it really well and get work into teams, Have you ever seen teams of squirrels working together to scare off cats and birds and so on? And of course humans, I uh, mean much more important is talking about humans, humans as well. We're much more homogenous than you would think, right? Our habits are very similar and we have a harmony. It's like a dance that we're dancing with each other and with the societies and countries and nations that we, in which we live. Because we've been practicing lifetime after lifetime We're really good at it Those who aren't very good at it, well they Maybe they have uh, bad karma so they're born as an animal Or maybe they're not good at being a human in the sense that they're too good for it They're just, you know They're overqualified And so when they die they get promoted They go to heaven or to the Brahma realm very interesting to think about what I want to point out out of this is that there's so much to think about karma is a very interesting subject and it's a warning because this isn't really Buddhism it's things that the Buddha taught but he had he had a a, a completely different reason uh, underneath for teaching karma He didn't teach karma saying, yeah, so this is my teaching, go out and do lots of good deeds and don't do bad deeds and learn how to be very efficient at, say, being a human and, you know, be a very good person. In fact, it's not what he taught. It's not, not the point. The point was to show. The point was to show that there is a science behind this, that reality is based on cause and effect. And for those people who are suffering Which is you know Anyone who's not enlightened That there was a reason for it There were reasons And there are reasons why we suffer He pointed out what he had seen Is that suffering is really caused by Clinging It's caused by our um, It's really caused by our karma Even good karma You know we've We practice good karma, well, it doesn't directly bring suffering But it indirectly leads to attachment, you know If you do lots of good karma and then you get very rich or, or happy Well, you know what happens then, of course You get egotistical and attached to your wealth and greedy and stingy Or attached to your happiness You become addicted to the happiness and pleasure You become indolent, intoxicated And so one of the first things a meditator sees is the nature of karma You may not have realized it, but that's what you were seeing in the first few days You're really getting a sense of, okay, if I do this, it makes me suffer, it's stressful If I do this, it's uh, much more peaceful And so you see some cause and effect You start to see how anger is stressful, how greed is stressful, how delusion is stressful how these things lead to stress, caught up in suffering. But that's only the first few days, you know, you go very much beyond that, and you get into what looks a lot more like science, a lot less like religion in the sense of there's no more talk about past lives, future lives, this magical uh, inner working of karma where it, you do bad things, and poof, bad things happen to you. It even goes beyond the idea that, uh, really, beyond the idea of suffering and the cause of suffering, and that in in the sense of of uh, what you should and shouldn't do. Right, This is what we were talking about last night, someone asked, "Should and is?" It was Kant, I think. They they brought up, Immanuel Kant, I think, was the guy. Maybe it was Hume. I can't remember. I can't keep those guys straight. Um, yeah, you can't get a should from an is, and yet, should is the nature of our mind. Should is how we think. And so, what meditation eventually takes you to is the is, right? So as you practice on, you start to see. It doesn't matter whether it's good or bad, right? All these good things that you you come to me, meditators. Uh, inevitably will come to me and excited and tell me about the great meditation they had. Oh, it was wonderful. I really, you know, really had a good meditation. It It was peaceful, it was pleasant, and so on. In the beginning, it's like that. And, of course, as you go on day in and day out, you start to see there's nothing really good about that. I mean, objectively, you could, you could, or... I don't know. Not objectively, but practically speaking, it's good. But you start to see that it's problematic as much as the uh, the pain is. You know, if you have something pleasant, then you just cling to it, and then you're depressed and upset when it's not there. If you have something unpleasant, same thing. You're always worried about it coming, when it's not there. Yeah. When it comes. you Know, the same as there's stress associated with good and bad good karma turns out to be not so good in the end in fact it's the we were talking about how it's the uh, you know, healthy people are are often the most intoxicated and when you have bad karma you know you think of the squirrel getting dispassionate about being a squirrel I bet that squirrels kind of had enough of being a squirrel you know getting caught by a cat who knows how many times and uh, so being a human, this is why you often hear teachers say being a human is a great it's a great uh, place to become enlightened because it's not too comfortable you know heaven is actually a wonderful place simply because uh, you can sit in meditation for months and months on end you know, there's very little to disturb you if you choose to do it right but it's it's quite often too too pleasant and so the problem is people in heaven. Don't meditate or didn't meditate. I, mean, I think now with a lot of Buddhists up there, there might be it might be different. I think it'd be kind of neat to be in heaven with all the Sotapanas and Sakadagamis. Anattapindika is up there. Visaka is up there. All these famous Buddhists that we hear about. But um, good karma doesn't turn out to be ultimately good The results of good karma turn out to not be ultimately good Because then you start to see, of course, the three characteristics Impermanent, suffering, and non-self And first this strikes you as the fact that, as I said, good things are also problematic Because they're unpredictable Uncontrollable, but more important—I mean, more more specifically, more directly—you just start to see that everything—it's not about good or bad, right or wrong. It's about the nature of reality. That's what you really get into. You start to see that the nature of reality wasn't what you thought it was. Before you thought reality could be predicted or maybe didn't even think, but you acted as though it was predictable, right? Why do we get shocked when things change? I mean, really? You weren't open to the fact that it could ha- this could happen to you when someone dies and we freak out. Even when we're in suffering and pain, when we lose, you know, if you lose your job, if you get sick, it's really upsetting. It's really upsetting because we, we have a sense of we get lulled into this sense of comfort, predictability, control We may not, we may acknowledge intellectually that we don't have that much control But we don't act that way Anything happens, we right away have to fix it, have to control it We can't bear And so we see that we've gone about this all wrong Because reality is of course unpredictable, uncontrollable, unsatisfying Happiness can't depend on external objects You'll always be disappointed You'll just build up more greed More uh, passion And and frustration and, and aversion And so on And so very early on in the course actually We get very much away from the idea of karma we're no longer concerned if we get sick. We're no longer concerned about... We're no longer even so concerned about doing good deeds. And now this has to be qualified because good deeds are different in the sense that they're efficient. An arahant, an enlightened being, does an incredible amount of good deeds. But they're not actually wholesome. They're not They're not karmically potent because the person who's doing them has no motive it's not doing them because x i was thinking about teaching and people wonder you know why teach should you teach shouldn't you teach why do i teach you know and uh, i think this is the best explanation of why a person should teach not because you know, i want you all to become enlightened or i have a quota or i think boy it would be great if x number of people could become enlightened we do it because it's efficient It's a way to live It's like if someone, if you're walking down the street And a person on the sidewalk asks you for a quarter. When you say no or when you ignore them That's conflict, it's stressful You know, you don't feel so good inside Of course the alternative of giving them something Has... has has the problem that we don't, you know, we, we we're greedy, we're attached to our money, we're um, we would say deluded, and because we we intellectualize it and we we overanalyze it. What's the person going to do with the money, et etc, et, cetera, et cetera. But very simply, it's a conflict. Someone has asked you for something, and you create conflict if you. Don't give it to them. And well, you know, there may be times where that's the appropriate thing to do, and in your mind, there's no conflict because you're clear. You know, look, this. Someone asks you for money to buy alcohol. You think, you know, that's really a, a bad, bad thing to do. Um, but the point being that enlightened being, is perfectly fine to give. Money to homeless people is perfectly fine to teach meditation. I mean, it's. These are things that they can do. Good karma is totally open to them. Bad karma is not because it's inefficient. It's. Um, th- there's a quality that. which is the reason why we call it bad. It's a quality to it that is uh, complicated or um, inefficient, I think, is really the, the closest I can get because. It requires some something, delusion, really, ignorance to do. Evil is anything that requires ignorance to do, let's put it that way. And by ignorance means you're not seeing it clearly. Evil cannot be performed if you're seeing perfectly clearly. That's a challenge. I mean that's a claim. I think it's a very important claim. So enlightened beings do so much good, they're very keen on giving and helping and teaching, practicing, studying, but it's not out of any desire for results, I mean it's not even out of an ambition or they're not really keen to do it, but they're keen in the sense that it's really all they do, it's just their nature, because it's all efficient. It's right in the sense of it's based on wisdom So after you start to see the three characteristics Karma really drops away because you see the good and bad And it's all just arising and ceasing And so that's what you start to see You see that really the only thing uh, truly real is arising and ceasing and then you start to look at that And this is where we get into the practice of vipassana So where all of you are now So you've gotten to the point where you start to See the ramifications of this this truth This, this fact that sabantang Whatever is of a nature to arise That is of a nature to cease Everything in the world arises and ceases Everything that arises ceases well, first of all, you start to see the, hey, wait, wait a minute, it ceases. It means that everything you hold on to, every part of who you are, is impermanent. There's nothing lasting. So you start to see everything ceasing and ceasing and ceasing. And then it it starts to hit you, you know, how, what a problem that is. Because all these things are things that we cling to, that we hold on to. You start to lose your attachment to these things You start to become dispassionate about them And as you become dispassionate You really turn This is the shift that you're all sort of working towards Where you start to see that Rather than get upset about these things You really should just let them go you stop trying to fix, you stop trying to control you really become quite powerful and the meditation doesn't get any easier in the sense of the same situation conditions come up I mean this is who you are, this is your body, I can't make it comfortable I mean I could, I could take you into states of concentration but that wouldn't be helping the, the, much better is when you get to this point where you stopped stop clinging where you're really just watching and you start to see that really all it is is, is arising and ceasing phenomenon until so you go right back to the beginning of, where you see the three characteristics and then you really see it free from partiality, reaction, judgment No karma, nothing to do with karma I mean there's so much good karma being produced Because it's all very efficient But there's no sense of I'm going to do X and it's going to have X result It's just seeing things as they are There's no more reacting to things A thought comes up, you don't follow it A sensation, an experience Seeing, hearing, smelling and so on Comes up and you don't cling to it or react to it That's what you're working towards also, not the goal, but that's what we're working towards. Because when you get there, this is the most efficient. It's like you've um, you've untied all the knots, or you've removed all the friction, and now you're you're frictionless. And once you become frictionless, you're able to slip out. And this is what happens when the mind is frictionless. There's the cessation of suffering Unlike anything else Nothing No arising No stress It's an experience that changes you When you have that experience even for a moment It changes you it changes the way you look at reality You're no longer stuck or hung up on samsara you've seen something better you've experienced true peace you've become peaceful peace is inside you so just some thoughts uh, I mean I think I wanted to point out how interesting karma is and how that interesting nature of karma is very much a side a side track you know it's a red herring You hear Buddhists talk about it all the time and it's quite interesting. I mean, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that yes, a lot of what happens to us is probably karmically related. You know, why we're rich, why we're poor, why we're healthy, why we're sick. But you can't go around wondering, you know, this happened to me today, is that karma? This happened to me, is that karma? Not only is it... um, it's incredibly speculative, right? But it's also not the point. We're not looking for causes, or you know, we're not delving back into the past or worrying about the future. In the end, it's not even really cause and effect. It's just about um, present moment. Present moment, seeing direct cause when you see what is the nature of things and what do they immediately lead to and start to see how you were looking at it in the wrong way and so on and you get through the practice of vipassana into the realization of nibbana, nirvana so lots of good stuff to come I'm really impressed by all of our meditators here Um, I was going to give an announcement before but I don't care if it's on the internet, it's okay but uh, I just wanted to say really good work and appreciate all what you're doing really got a good group of meditators here I was late and when I got here the meditators were all ready to leave because they'd been here for a few days and I wasn't here but I think that's calmed down once you get into it you have someone sort of reassuring you that you're you're not crazy you're not gonna go crazy you can do this it's much better but I also wanted to say that uh, I don't know if we mentioned Um, but there's no one here, as you've noticed, there's no one, we don't have a cleaning staff and so I think you've all been told to some extent to clean up after yourself to clean up after each other I'd also ask if from time to time and maybe every day you could pick a chore to do I think we have to be careful about keeping the bathrooms clean because there can be all sorts of bacteria and, and so on build up so I mean, if you're looking for things to do, don't work all day but I would recommend taking one one chore every day something different something that needs to be done vacuuming sweeping washing scrubbing cleaning uh, organizing even I don't know whatever there is to be done there's nothing to be done you don't have to go looking for stuff but do be a little bit observant and mindful and pull yourself out of the meditation do it mindfully, but pull yourself out for a second to think about what it is that needs to be done and then try and do it as mindfully as you can. Okay? Oh, and if someone could clean off, could wipe the dust off this table, that'd be nice. I mean, in Asia, it's funny. In Thailand, they're not dust and cobwebs. They just let it, but I think we should be, you know, clean. Clean the dust off. this That top surface there is special because it's where the Buddha sits so don't just put anything up there Um, and try to keep the dust off of it and wipe it down with a cloth or something, that kind of thing you know there's probably a lot like that that can be done gives you a little bit to do every day okay that's the Dhamma for tonight, thank you all for coming out and go back to your practice Oh, here's someone talking about hemodialysis. I'm I don't I'm I'm gonna break my own rule and answer a question on YouTube. Um, I had two students who were doing what I think is hemodialysis, if if it's what I understand, and they brought um, portable dialysis machines with them to do the course. Two people, and they did fine. I want you all to meet. Uh, Anyway, later, I won't embarrass her. I want you to meet Edith at some point, no? (laughs) Scare her right now. Remember what I said, no? My teacher would do the same thing with us, pulling us out and using us as an example. Hope you're not embarrassed. Okay, any questions on the site? Can I even load the site? Oh yes, it's loading Why did the Buddha decide to teach? Why would he care about the happiness of other beings If it didn't affect his own happiness? I think I sort of answered this tonight um, The Buddha actually, the, the theory, you know It's a question that, that was kind of asked, I think And the, um, the orthodox story is that he was invited to teach Which makes sense, I mean It's really... Um, reason why why we teach at all we don't it sets a model really it shows a good example you know that we don't chase students or run around looking for students or we don't pick students like i want to teach this person and boy i hope they get something out of it we teach those people who want to learn who are looking to learn in fact right after the buddha became enlightened he thought why would I teach this, you know? Why would I stress myself out and teach others? And then he was asked to teach, and It's like, okay. Because he's happy, he, you know? It would be inefficient to de- to deny someone's request. Or maybe inefficient is the wrong word. It would take something, it would take a, an attachment, right? Because we think of happiness, we think, why would he go out of his way? And if someone told him, why wouldn't he just tell them to, to get lost, right? because we think of happiness as something that you have to hold on to you know. If I don't hold on to this, the happiness will go away But that's not happiness Happiness is you don't mind what comes or what goes So why would you teach? Well, because someone's there looking to learn So you continue on When lying down to meditate uh, The strongest thing my attention is drawn to is my heartbeat well, That's not a problem You can just note feeling, feeling For a while, you don't have to stay with it Stay with it for a while and then go back to the rising and falling If you're reacting to it, liking it, disliking it, worried about it Confused, doubting and so on Who said there is no self? Isn't that a fundamental tenet? Tenet, I think, is what you're looking for in Buddhism? And something that the Buddha described himself. Anatta is a quality. It's a characteristic of things. It doesn't say there is no self. The Buddha never said, as far as I know, there is no self. And I've gotten in trouble for this because some people have tried to give me a talking to and tell me, well, you know, he pretty much said there isn't a self. And I don't think that's true. I, I don't want to mislead you. I mean, it's not like the Buddha was there for inclined to believe that there is a self. It's just, it's not a useful word. I mean, I've ta- said this many, many times. Expl- tried to explain this many times. The idea that something is or isn't is um, is, is in the realm of entities. You know, a self-existing is a different way of looking at reality. We don't look at reality from the point of view of what is this thing is that thing is. We look at reality from a point of view of experience. And so it's much more practical and less philosophical. Is there a self? Is there a god? Et cetera, et cetera. Do I exist? Do I not exist? These are not questions. And the Buddha dr- directly um, denounce these questions. Are they useless? Because it's a wrong way of looking at, or it's, yeah, it's a useless way of looking at reality. reality the most useful is uh, based on experience. And in experience you don't have things like self, you don't have things. So the question, is there a self, isn't there a self, doesn't work. But everything you experience is non self in the sense that it wouldn't qualify as a self, it doesn't belong to self, it's not controllable, it's not possessable. Saying itself is silly is the cause of suffering, right? When you say itself or when you cling to it as me, mine, that's what causes all sorts of trouble. Because that's what causes ego, arrogance, attachment, conceit So that's what is meant by anatta Trouble with my breath during meditation I find that I'm controlling my breath There you go So our our fundamental way of looking at things Is trying to control things And this is the problem So the anatta is um, the, the realization That frees you from uh, this control So This person's next question is asking about controlling the breath, and the funny thing is you can't control the fact that you're controlling your breath, right? So it's not actually controlling it. It's a mind state that is stressed about it, that gets stressed when things are a certain way, trying to wish for them to be another way, and it's just stress in the mind. Once you see that and let go, you stop stressing. And when you stop stressing, you stop suffering so they're asking are there any techniques I'm used to relinquish this control so what you're saying is can you give me a technique by which I can control my controlling and that's absolutely impossible I mean it's not really control at all and that's what you're seeing you can't stop yourself from doing the wrong thing making mistakes the only way to stop yourself from making mistakes doing the wrong thing is doing what you're doing and you're so basically your practice is good the person who's asking me this is, is practicing correctly. It's what we would expect. You see how dumb, how how wrong we are, how how misguided your your intentions and your actions are, and you see it again and again and again until you finally really get it. And when you really get it, it you stop naturally. So you're trying to observe the breath in natural state. Well, that is the natural state. Unfortunately, that's the natural state of you you're all mixed up as we all are it's just a matter of seeing that and realizing what you're doing wrong It just takes time and patience really ideally if you came here and did a course I could really show you is it true that according to Theravada teachings when a person achieves Nibbana that person ceases the person never existed in the first place again we get back to looking at reality we don't admit the existence of a person in ultimate reality. It's just a concept. You see someone, you think, oh, that's a person, but actually it's just light touching the eye. It's just an experience. When you think about yourself, it's the same thing. It's just a the- it's just a concept, an abstract. No, you don't just disappear when you reach Nibbāna. Nibbāna is an experience you can have. Nirvana is an experience. That you can have for a moment, a few moments. It's not something that you know, that poof, you're gone. <laughs> not unless you pass away. When you pass away and enter into parinibbana, then that's it. No coming back. No more rebirth. Okay, that's all. Thank you all for coming out. Wish you all a good night. See you all next time. I'm gonna I'm gonna probably change the schedule. Friday we're not having. Um Friday I won't be here, and I think probably Saturday and Sunday, because this Saturday and Sunday is really busy. We've got the huge, if any of you are in Toronto area or want to come to Toronto, um, there's a very, very big celebration of the Buddha's birthday on Sunday. Saturday I'm going to be busy all day teaching meditation in Toronto, and there's a big ceremony in the morning, Um, and I'm not going to be here. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday is out this week. And I think next week I'm going to start to find a schedule I may just do three times a week broadcast uh, Because one night a week we're now going to have a meeting Of our, If anybody here is interested, Friday night We're going to have a volunteer meeting for our organization If you want to get more involved Help us work towards building a meditation center here in Canada Learn about all the good things we're doing locally and, and online um, You're welcome to, to learn about that and get involved Anyway, that's the broadcast for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in.